Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to Investors Chronicle's Investing Explained podcast series. Last week, we took you on a tour on how to navigate the labyrinth of the sustainable investing world. Today, we've got another bespoke topic, how to construct an investment portfolio. There's no one correct way to do it, but there are several pitfalls that can relatively easily be avoided. To help us adopt the Charlie Munger approach of not doing anything stupid, I'm delighted to be joined by IG Sam Dickens to guide us through how to construct and monitor a robust portfolio. Sam, thank you for joining me. How are you? Very well, thanks. Great to be here. Now, before you even think about what you want to own, you need to think about your appetite and capacity for risk. Please, can you explain what factors you need to consider, what risk means and and how to work out how much you should take? Sure. So, I mean, risk is a a big topic. There's books dedicated to the subject. Um, But what is risk? And that differs um, between who you ask. So, one, one risk people might be aware of is the loss of principle. So that's the risk of losing part or all of your original investment. And the more conservative investor might be more concerned about this. Um, they, they, they don't like to see a, a drawdown in, in the value of their portfolio. Other people might be more concerned with the risk of underperformance. That could be against the relative benchmark or perhaps to inflation, um, which is quite topical today with inflation rates where they are. So if, you, if your wealth is not growing faster than inflation, your wealth is declining in real terms. So you're seeing a loss in purchasing power. So that's that's in, inflation risk and very prominent in, in bonds, like I said today. And so, so, yeah, in terms of measuring risk, there's many different ways you can you can do that. One popular way is um, looking at the volatility or the fluctuations of, of your portfolio returns. That's usually measured by the take, looking at the standard deviation of, of your investment returns. And those, those, those calculations are used in popular risk measures such as the Sharpe ratio, which assess risk adjusted returns. So they can be quite useful to compare different portfolios that look to take on a, a similar amount of risk. Others, others for instance, um, look at tail risk. So investors could look at, uh, look at a metric called value at risk or um, to look at the, the kind of threshold that might be exceeded under certain um, probability. Um, so that's the, that's the tail risk. Um, others which are m- much easier to calculate for individual investors might be the size of drawdowns that um, you see in the portfolios. So over the pandemic, we saw equity markets fall off quite substantially. Um, and a drawdown looks at the peak to trough decline of a portfolio. So I can give you an example our moderate portfolio that takes on a lower amount of risks or a 10% decline during the pandemic. But our most risk-taking profile, which has outperformed the, the lowest profile um, since its inception, um, declined by around 24%. So yeah, to sum up, there's there's lots of ways of looking and defining risk. Um, so hopefully that's covered a few. Yeah, that was really interesting. Thank you. And especially... Um be at the front inflation will be at the front of investors minds at the moment and it's important to to know that perhaps the do nothing all in cash is actually a risk in itself what, what do you think is the best way to mitigate inflation risk specifically absolutely so the, sitting on the sidelines of cash is, is a risk it's opportunity cost of the returns you could have and um, being invested so in, in the current current um, landscape we see ourselves in a, a period of very low 
um, real rates um, with inflation fairly high. Um, so thinking about where you might want to be positioned, even though if you look at some valuation metrics such as the PE ratio, even though earnings have been extremely strong over 2021, um, which has seen some of those PE ratios for some um, indices, uh, stock indices decline, um, stocks still appear good value compared to, to bonds, where, where in, in real terms their yields are negative. Um, so in terms of combating inflation and overcoming that inflation risk, if the, the individual can take on um, a good amount of investment risk, then we do feel that stocks are still the asset class to be in. Yeah, and just um, zooming out again, diversification is one of the key ways to mitigate risk. What are the best ways to achieve a diversified portfolio? Yeah, so um, there's, there's, as I said, there's two different kind of categories of risk. There's systematic risk, which uh, just comes with investing in the market. And then there's unsystematic risk or diversifiable risk. And, and combining asset classes and invest in investments that aren't perfectly correlated um, can help you reduce your unsystematic risk to diversify away um, that risk. So the aim is to construct a portfolio with a, a blend of different asset classes and sub-asset classes to create a portfolio that lies on what's known as the efficient frontier. So for a given um, amount of risk, you want to be building a portfolio that maximizes expected returns or, or put differently, um, if, a, if a client has a certain amount of risk uh, return they're looking to go after, you want to be building a portfolio with the, the, the minimum risk. One way of good way of visualizing diversification, um, you could look at a, a, what's known as a correlation matrix. So you could plot out lots of different asset and sub asset classes and calculate correlations between each um, variation. And that's a nice way to show that over, historically speaking, um, equities and blending together equities and bonds helps to to diversify and smooth your investment returns over time. These these matrices are often available online, or if you've got the right software, you can calculate them yourself. That was that was exactly what I was going to ask. Where can you find them? I think JP Morgan publishes one, which is freely available. I believe so. I think I've seen that before. Yeah, um, but if if not, then you'd need a, a subscription to a data package or to download all the returns for those indices yourself and. Um, go about doing it in Excel, which um, can be time consuming. You talked about um, different asset classes there for diversification, but there are other things like investment styles. So whether you're going for growth stocks or value stocks and also the difference between large cap and small cap, do you think these factors should also be considered in the context of diversification? Exactly. Yeah, there's lots of ways you can think about a diversification and and. Uh, risk factors is certainly one. Um, so it's important to, when you're building a portfolio and uh, to take consideration of the sectors that you invest in. Um, and then also those risk factors that um, you've got exposure to. So combining kind of also, for instance, size. So not only just investing in the, the, the big mega caps, but also diversifying into smaller cap securities really does actually help um, improve the diversification of your portfolio. Too often than not, people think spreading your investments between the US, UK, Europe, um, across the main indices helps you diversify. Over time, whilst we've seen 
um, globalization of the world economy, the correlations between those large caps um, across um, regions is, is really increased, um, which means that you don't get as much um, diversification benefits as, as you did historically. So considering risk factors and sector exposure and, and uh, market caps um, is, is certainly a good way to um, diversify your portfolio. So for someone with perhaps a 30-year time horizon, what do you think a suitable portfolio might look like? You mentioned you mentioned earlier that you think equities are the best place. Would it be just equities? or? Yeah, so a 30-year time horizon is, in my opinion, a relatively long period of time. So that type of investor would be kind of more suitable to investing in risk assets such as equities or in private markets, for instance, if, if they're able to do so. Um, but it's important to remember that um, asset class selection does explain the vast majority of long-term returns. I think some people calculate this to be around 90%. There's a lot of um, people that disagree with that. Um, but the asset class does drive a lot or does explain a lot of your future returns. But that doesn't mean that um, you should invest 100% in stocks. As we, we mentioned, some diversification is good to provide superior risk-adjusted returns. Um, and also not be not being fully invested in equities and having some potentially um, lower risk investments, cash is one, um, short dated bonds, holding part of your portfolio on, in those does give you the flexibility to take advantage of certain opportunities if they arise in different parts of the market cycle. So, for instance, a, a high risk um, in, investor might choose to have some cash on the sideline if there is a big sell-off in equity markets, um, such as there was in uh, during the pandemic. Um, that way you can reinvest the, the, the cash or proceeds from lower risk investments in, back into the global equity market to take advantage of lower valuations. So um, yeah, so, so stocks, in my opinion, would be most suitable, but it's, it's, there's more to it than um, just being 100% invested in stocks. Yeah. If you did want to buy short dated bonds, perhaps with inflation protection, what's the best way to do that? Would it be through an ETF? Yeah. So, for instance, in the portfolios that we build for clients, we, we have a lot of inflation, um, uh, inflation linked bond exposure. Um, so ETFs are a really good way to um, have that exposure managed for you. Um, for instance, bonds expire. You, you want to make sure that um, when they do expire that you're um, still got exposure to the asset class and reinvested in in um, uh, later dated bonds. So yeah, ETFs are a great way. They're also very low cost. They'll have a very low annual um, annual fee to in, invest in those. So they're, they're a great tool to use to, 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 to get exposure to um, uh, that part of um, the market. And for someone who's got some money that they want to invest and perhaps investing for the first time, is it better to drip it into the market or is it better to just put it all in at once? This is a, this is a, a question I, I do actually get quite a lot. Um, and there's a lot of good research on this. If you, if you were to Google um, dollar cost averaging versus lump sum, you can find some really good um, analysis on it. Um, but what that analysis finds is that more often than not, a lump sum investment is, is better 
over the long term than dollar cost averaging. It's only when you invest the lump sum before a large market crash, um, for instance, um, before the financial crisis, before the dot-com bubble, uh, thinking back to the 70s, um, it's only just before that market crash that over over a long period of time um, lump sum underperforms dollar cost averaging and that's because when you when you dollar cost average or here in the UK pound cost average you're buying into a falling market and therefore get a lower average price in the in, in the grand scheme of things if you zoom out and think about a 30-year time horizon more often than not the market is drifting upwards so for those long-term investors it's, it's more often they're not better to just put your lump sum into the market. But that sounds a bit reckless. You've got to also pay attention to things like where are valuations now, what's going on, where, where do you think we are in the current market cycle? So if it's lump, putting a, a part of that lump in and then um, dripping some money on uh, into your portfolio every month or every quarter, then that could be an option. Another thing to, to think about when you've got a lump sum is also if you're employed, you're, you're getting paid on a, a monthly basis. And hopefully um, from, from that monthly salary, you'd be able to squirrel away some, some savings. So that as well is dollar cost averaging. So the fact that you're kind of getting the, that, those, those paychecks in the future should allow you to take on kind of more investment risk and it might, may warrant um, putting a lump sum in. In, into the market. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think one thing to add is that if you put it as a lump sum, then you will save yourself in some trading fees. I guess a reason for dripping it in is the psychological impact of a market crash as much as anything. Yeah, exactly. So when when you're investing, cost is, cost is a big aspect of it. And um, as you said, if, you, if, if, you're, if your provider charges a, a fixed fee to, to invest, rather than a percentage fee, um, then yeah, you've got better outcomes sticking it in at once rather than continuously um, paying commission. And if you're starting for the first time, how many funds does it make sense to start with? I know this is quite a subjective question and you want to pick between active and passive. You might want to buy an investment trust, which is an actively managed listed fund. you know, is is it c- could it make sense to just buy one fund, or should you be splitting across across different funds? Yeah, it depends what the fund does. Um, I like to think of the passive and active argument as a as a scale, really. So there's there's so many different decisions that you make um, during the investment process when building your portfolio. If you chose just to hold one one fund, that, in my opinion, is an active decision. It's quite active. You've you've got quite high concentration. Um, but then again, it depends what the fund does. For instance, if it's a MSCI World ETF, then you've got quite a bit of um, diversification across lots and lots of thousands of different companies. Um, if it's a, a fund that's very concentrated in a small number of technology stocks, for instance, then you've got a, a lot more risk. So it's, if you, you are picking a fund, it's important to think what it does, what, what, it hold, what, what its underlying investments are, um, but in terms of if you're just starting out and, and looking to buy a fund, there's also lots of other um, options to, to get a, a diversified, diversified portfolio and just one investment. For instance, um, there's providers out there that actually have 
um, multi-asset funds, which you can invest in. Also, there's lots of online investment um, propositions, which that you get instant exposure to um, lots of different asset classes and markets, um, all in all in one fund too. So if you're just starting out, it's probably worth having a look at some of those um, propositions um, to to get that diversification that's sensible to have. Yeah. I think passive is a great low cost way to get started. Um, and active can be quite quite good too to help you learn more about the markets because they have good commentaries and things. Now, the killer question, <laughs> do you think crypto has a place in, in an investment portfolio? Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. And again, one, one that we're asked quite often, um, given it's so popular at the moment. Um, but if you're, if you're tasked with constructing an optimal risk return portfolio at the moment it's quite difficult to fit crypto into into these given their volatility and and also lack of track record um what it would probably if if you if we could uh, add it into the portfolios what it would probably mean is that we'd have to take a lot less risk in other areas um so would would likely have to dial down a lot of our exposure to to equities for instance and maybe hold a lot more um lower risk investments and that might not that might mean we are no longer on that efficient frontier. Um, also, the outlook for crypto is is an unknown, and as I said, it's got a, a very limited historical track record. Um, that probably will um, not please a lot of um, people, um, but um, that's our position at the moment. Um, but as well, you've you've got to think of your portfolio as your entire wealth, really. So if you have different Kind of goals that you're saving towards um you might have some capital that you're happy to risk um and it's perfectly fine to to take a take an educated bet on certain asset classes or um certain securities and if, if that's crypto and you're well versed and understand the technology and the use case for it then that can be fine if you're you're willing to risk that that portion of capital yeah don't invest more than you can afford to lose I think the, the fact the regulations haven't caught up yet. So the exchanges, I think they have to register for anti-money laundry purposes. But apart from that, if anything goes wrong, your your money's lost and you can't claim from the financial services compensation scheme. Yeah, there's another side to things, crypto too, so re regulatory. Um, so for instance, um, in the UK, crypto isn't, uh, the underlying crypto isn't allowed in an exchange traded fund, for instance. So with our, our portfolios, we, we construct those using ETFs. So um, that means that that can't find, crypto can't find its way into, into the portfolios with the current regulation. But the first Bitcoin one was recently approved in the States, if I'm correct. So, so maybe this yeah, is the moving landscape. States as well. I found there's um, a couple in Germany, I, I believe, on, listed on the German exchange. Um, but um for UK investors, unfortunately, um, any exchange-traded um, crypto is, is, is not allowed for, for retail investors at the moment. And what are your thoughts about alternative assets for private investors? The main way to access these would be through an investment trust, and they've raised record sums last year in um, predominantly infrastructure and renewable energy infrastructure, but also private equity and property. What, what are your thoughts on holding these in a portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about diversification, um, for, for most investors, it, it might just be 
stocks and bonds and um, gold and perhaps a bit of property, but other asset classes that um, private investors might not be um, too as familiar with, such as infrastructure and private equity. Um, they, they give investors an opportunity to um, shift that efficient frontier upwards to provide superior risk-adjusted returns. Um, but going back to your um, to the importance of thinking about your time horizon, these investments are a lot more illiquid than equities and, and, and bonds. Um, so that's, a, that's an important consideration to make. If, if um, for instance, the private equity listed fund undergoes a, a, quite a prolonged period on underperformance, um, are you able to, to hold that investment until it perhaps comes good? Um, and also an, another, when, when thinking about alternative investments, which are, uh, as I said, a lot more illiquid, you've got to take into consideration um, that, um, that they sometimes have a perceived lower volatility. Um, they just trade less, um, as I said, being illiquid. So when you're constructing a portfolio, it might seem that these provide more diversification benefits than in reality they, they might do um, in, a, in a large market sell-off. And that can lead to a, an over allocation to those asset classes. So some adjustments need to be there to, to factor in that illiquidity risk. Um, but as I said at the start, some of these asset classes or alternative asset classes are a great way to um, boost your risk adjusted returns. Yeah, that's a really important point you mentioned about, um, you know, in a, in a crisis, the diversification benefits might be at their weakest, which is just when you want the most. Um, yeah, exactly. And an investment trust as well can, can trade at significant discounts or premiums. So during a, a market sell-off, um, investors in, in those might see the, the value of those trusts decline more than its net asset, um, the net asset value of, of that. That too also provides great opportunities for investors during those those periods um, of market stress. So um, a lot of our investors do like um, investment trust because of that um, discount and premium play. Now, the UK stock market is now a very small proportion of the global stock market. Um, but most of our listeners will be based in the UK. How much allocation do you think might be suitable to UK assets versus the rest of the world? Yeah, and, and doing my homework for this, this this podcast, I actually had a look to see what the weight in the UK was in the MSCI World Index, and it's, it's something like 3.7% now. Um, so it's quite remarkable. I, I'm not quite sure. Off the top of my head, it might have been 6% um, maybe before Brexit, but there's been a significant period of underperformance of UK um, assets compared to to US and European um, equities. And I mean, 3.7%, Canada, I think, has a just over a 3% weighting too. So um, so it, one way of thinking about your, your allocation to UK equities is looking at this, um, looking at a benchmark such as the MSCI world and thinking where it could be in the next five years um, and not where it is now. So there's differing opinions, but um, UK equities are arguably um, relatively cheap compared to um, US stocks, for instance, which hold a, a far, far greater weight in, in the global, global index. And for that reason, quite a lot of um, portfolio managers here in the UK are, are overweight UK stocks. 
And that will also be down to a home bias too. It's very common to see um, investors in over over allocate to domestic stocks. Um, and for instance, in our across our portfolios, we've got about 15% exposure to um, UK equities. There's other reasons for having this upweight exposure too. So for instance, it can control other risks such as currency risk because those investments are in pounds. So um, if 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 you if you've got significant investments in U.S. equities, for instance, that and you don't have any currency hedges in place to control for that um, currency risk and fluctuations in, in in currency between the pound and dollar, having a slightly more weight to UK equities can help um, reduce your currency risk. Yeah, it can actually it can have a surprisingly big impact. Yeah, and that that currency risk is often probably one of the most overlooked risks. Um, and it's, it's, it's not just stocks, but especially important when investing in, say, US um, fixed income securities where yields are very low. Um, so we have a preference for hedging um, quite a lot of that um, currency risk. Um, so applying sterling hedges to those positions. Yeah, you do at least face some currency risk investing in domestic stocks, though, with 70% of FTSE 100 earnings coming from overseas. <laughs> Exactly. That, that, there's that to consider too. Um, and, and similarly, when you're investing overseas, um, not all of that will be that domestic. Um, um, revenues will be derived elsewhere too. So um, it's, it is quite co- a complex um, process in terms of deciding the optimal um, amount of currency to, to hedge. Um, so uh, yeah, that is certainly a headache which um, investors do have. And- how regularly do you think you should review your portfolio? And do you have any guidance on what you should be looking at when you review your portfolio? Yeah, I, th- I think it's important to be continuously reviewing the, the, the economic landscape, political situations, and, and probably most importantly, valuations too. And um, that doesn't mean trading on a, on a, a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Um, it's probably worth revisiting your portfolio um, more so on a quarterly or, or semi-annual basis. Um, as, as you pointed out earlier, making changes to your portfolio can really ramp up the costs. And if, if, if you've got a, if you're relatively new to investing, um, that can be a significant amount of a proportion of, of your portfolio um, that's paid away in fees. But a, a quarterly review is probably sensible. Um, you can you can either um, set um, certain t- as I said, you could do it periodically, or also you could you could look if you if you know what portfolio you want to build, you could look to rebalance that when the weights uh, for each um, market deviate from a certain range. So there's lots of different ways of going about um, reviewing and, and rebalancing your portfolio. Yes, don't become obsessed with looking at daily prices because it probably won't help you. <laughs> Exactly. Paying attention to those short term market movements can really distract you from your long term investment goals. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Sam. I wish we could go on, but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Thank you. No, thank you very much. Thank you.